Well, good evening. I hope you guys, um, hope you're having a good week. Um, just as a reminder, this is the second to last week, as Cameron mentioned earlier, this is the second to last week of our Wednesday night community. We'll, we'll take a break, so write it down on your bulletin so you don't forget. Show up next week. Next week will be our last. But a little bit of confusion. I had a uh, brief bathroom conversation with someone here before the service started. They go, so is it tonight or is it next week is the last one? Because TSM, uh, which is our Timberline Student Ministry um, and our kids area, they're done tonight. Tonight's the last night. So we just like to confuse people, and so we do this kind of thing. Um, so it is a little confusing, sorry about that, but next week will be the last night for our adult uh, Wednesday night community. Tonight is the last night for TSM and our kids' programming, okay? So we are in, a two, or we are in week two of a three-week series looking at um, the, the lost, what we're calling the lost 40 days of Jesus. Um, this I... More so lost to us, as I mentioned last week, that, that sometimes we don't spend as much time there as we should, but really I think, I think there's a key, it sort of acts as a skeleton key to the whole rest of the story of the church um, and where even where we're living now, that some really unique, significant things happened um, during this period that, that launched these followers of Jesus into something totally new. Um, and different from what we see them as in the Gospels, where they're kind of bumbling, they're slow of heart is a phrase that's used a lot uh, in the Gospels. Thanks, Cameron. And so tonight, what I want us to do, we're going to, uh, you can open up your bulletin. Um, we're going to read John chapter 21, and then we're going to kind of just slowly go through it, kind of verse by verse. This is the last chapter in the Gospel of John. And I've asked Ricky to come tonight and to read for us. You can use this mic right here. And um, to read for us, John chapter 21. Yeah, please stand up here. John chapter 21. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, <clears throat> also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we will go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but his disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net onto the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. Then the disciples told, disciples whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net of fish, sorry, towing the net full of fish. For they were not far from shore, <clears throat> about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire, burn, fire of burning coals with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. 
None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you were old, you, when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Jesus said, oh, sorry. Uh, then Jesus said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciples whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I wanted him to remain alive until I return. I'm sorry. If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread amongst the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I wanted him to remain alive until I return, what is it to you? This is the disciple who testified to these things and who wrote them down. We know, them, we know that the, his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the book that this would be written. Thank you, Ricky. Thank you. So this is the last chapter in the Gospel of John. Um, oftentimes, if, if you've read the Gospel of John, you, you finish chapter 20, and it's like a crescendo finish. It's awesome. It's powerful. And then there's this, it, this feels like tacked on. Um, it, oftentimes, people will say, maybe this was like a later edition, or, or maybe this was kind of 2.0 of John's Gospel, that he maybe like penned this chapter as almost like an epilogue to, to go along with it, to kind of like answer some um, hanging questions that are there. But I want to I show a picture to kind of frame tonight and frame where we're going that, that'll kind of set up what's happening. Um, how many of you know what this is? Who knows what this is? What is it? Navy SEAL training, right? Um, have you seen movies like this? Like, I, I love, I love, like, Navy SEAL movies. Uh, I read the book... Um, Marcus Luttrell's book, uh, Lone Survivor, so good. It's awesome. They made it into a movie, book's better. But, um, like, I love watching these movies on my couch 
like eating potato chips, you know, kind of thing. But, but there's, there's just something that's so crazy about the kind of, of training that these Navy SEALs go through. It's actually called um, BUDS training, um, which is, uh, let's see if I can, basic underwater demolition SEAL training. It's like super intense. SEAL training is, is six months Long. I mean, imagine committing to six months of training in this way. Um, it takes place at the Naval Special Warfare Training Center in uh, Coronado, California. If you've ever gone to the islands, there's this beautiful Hotel Del Coronado there. I remember as a kid, we took a trip there and seeing this area. It's just beautiful, beautiful area, extremely cold water. And so this, this training starts with five weeks of indoctrination and pre-training as this Navy SEAL class. And, and then there are three phases that they, they go through in this BUDS training. The first phase is physical conditioning. It's eight weeks long. Um, second phase after that is, is diving. It's also eight weeks long. And then finally, there, there's a land warfare that's nine weeks long. But the first phase is the toughest, they say, because the first, week, the first phase has in it something called, anyone know what it's called? hell week. It's like horrible. Like I remember in Luttrell's book, he spent like a couple chapters just on hell week. And it was like insane. The kind of conditioning these guys had to go through. Um, because in this hell week, they, they go through extreme physical endurance, um, mental tenacity, is, is tested, how they work with, with teams. Sometimes they're given very little instruction and just sent out for a couple days. You have to go do this and go do that and not told what time they have to be back, what, when they have to, how much they have to drink, how much they have to eat. They are only allowed four hours of sleep a day. Can you imagine? They're basically trying to push these people to, to the brink of breaking. Marcus Luttrell in his book, Lone Survivor, talks about one of these days where after many, many days of only four hours a day and just being pushed to exhaustion, being out in the water, and they're having to hold up these big logs, and, and how so many of the guys would start to um, have like visions that they're somewhere else. Uh, and he said, I, I, I absolutely thought I was like at home, and then I would jump back to where I was, and I was going somewhere else. He was just having these, his mind was playing tricks on him because, because they're pushed on these beaches at Coronado, they're, they're pushed to the absolute breaking uh, limits. They're miserably wet and cold. They're brought to the very brink of hypothermia. Many of them get it and they bring them out, get them back so they're just functioning and then they throw them back in <laughs> to this kind of thing. It just, I mean, the sheer fatigue and sleep deprivation, it's to make them question, what are my core values? What am I really about? What am I really made of? What do I really care about? What is it that I really stand for? Um, and of course, their, their goal is, if you've seen, you know what their goal of the instructors, I mean, they're trying to weed out the bad ones, okay? And when they get finally weeded out, you know what they do? You've seen this in, you guys gotta see more movies. What's wrong with you people? You should know this better than the Bible, for goodness sakes. This is exciting stuff. They ring the bell. There's this big bell sitting there. And when they're just like, I can't do anymore, I've, I'm done, that they go and they get this thing and they, they take off their helmet, set it down, and they bing, and they ring this bell. And that means I'm done. I've got nothing left. I can't do it. I'm not, I'm not strong enough. 
But those who gritted out to the end, and they're typically told, all the guys that come in, about two-thirds of them, they say, they're going to ring the bell. They're done. Because your, your goal, what you're longing to hear is your, your instructor come and say, uh, you're secure from hell week. It's over for you. It's finished. You're secure from hell week. And that's what they're ultimately longing to hear. Tonight, we're, we're looking at a scene that it's not SEAL training on Coronado Beach, but it's, it's, it's shepherd training on Tiberius Beach. Um, and I want you to see there are some similarities and there are some extreme differences. In fact, I went to the uh, Navy SEAL website this week. This is the stated goal of what they want to get out of this training on Coronado Beach. It says, there will be an exceptional few with burning desire who persevere with their bodies, are, uh, are screaming to quit, yet continue on. These men experience a tremendous sense of pride, achievement, brotherhood, and a new self-awareness that I can do anything. The most outstanding among them, the one man whose sheer force of example inspires his classmates to keep going when, they've, when they're ready to quit, he is the honor man of the class. So this shepherd training on the beach of Tiberius focuses mostly on one guy. And the question is, does this sound like him? No, he's, he's a pretty broken guy when we meet him. His name's Peter. But here's the question I want you to think about as we're reading through this account is, is Peter here, to use the Navy SEALs language, a man who's ex who has experienced tremendous sense of pride, achievement, brotherhood, new self-awareness that I can do anything, the most outstanding among them, a man whose sheer force of example inspires his classmates to keep going when they're ready to quit, an honor man? <laughs> Not even close. Not even close. Jesus should have gone to SEAL school to pick people. Like, why does he go here? Why does he go to the beach of Tiberias? to get his guys, because at the end of his training, three years, not six months, three years, Jesus is with these guys, and man, they have rung the bell. <laughs> they, they, they have quit on him, and Jesus is still coming back and saying, more conditioning. We're gonna do more conditioning, and so that's, that's what's going on here tonight. I would suggest Peter thought he was that man of honor, like in the SEAL school. I think early on, read the Gospels, and how many times does Peter think of himself as sort of like, I'm that guy. I'm that guy who can do that. You go back to chapter 13 of the Gospel of John, and you see Peter loudly and emphatically saying, I will die for you, Jesus. I'll do anything. I will not ring the bell. I will go to prison for you. I will do absolutely anything for you. In chapter 18, we see uh, Jesus, or we see Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane, and, and we watch helplessly as he tries and fails, right, even with his sword. We see after Jesus' arrest, Peter's following the, this arrested person and the ones who are taking him away, and, and uh, he gets it horribly wrong. He denies Jesus in the city of Jerusalem. And instead of just getting out, just run, get out of there, Peter, um, he stays and it, just, it gets like devastatingly worse and worse. And he keeps getting it 
more wrong and more wrong. And remember where he was? Remember where Peter, where, where Peter was when, when he really got it wrong? You remember what he was standing by? He's, he's a, it, it's a cold night in April. He's standing by a fire, right? He's watching Jesus. He's warming himself by a, by a charcoal fire. Okay, store that away. He's warming himself by fire. This is in April, same month as it is right now. It's, a, it's an evening time. And he denies Jesus and he hears the rooster crow for that final time. Imagine, imagine the smells. Imagine standing there, the sense of it. And then think of Peter going out of the city after this is over. Um, he's going out in shame. He's angry with himself. Right? He, he knows that Jesus knows that he let him down. He knows that the, the disciple that, whom Jesus loved, John, he knows John knows. He knows God knows. He's going out in just utter shame. And then the next morning he wakes up to find out what actually happened to his rabbi who was arrested. He was, he was killed. He was killed. Okay, so back on the beach now, at the end of chapter uh, 21, um, Peter had already, Jesus has been raised from that. Peter has already interacted. He's already seen this is not Peter's first encounter with the risen Jesus. They've met several times. They would have embraced each other. They would have cried. They would have talked to one another. But not even the resurrection has a magic wand to erase the memory of what had gone on. Many of you know the, the challenge of healing Memories, it's a pretty serious thing, isn't it? The, the finding of forgiveness that, that can go back to, to, to a buried hurt, uh, a buried fear, a buried failure or a, or a sin, and, and really deal with it. But see, Jesus knew, Jesus knew that only by revisiting this and, and bringing, bringing it in to God's own healing... Could, could Peter, and I would suggest can, can, can we, get on with the mission that God has called us to, get on with just the life that God has entrusted us with. So, so that's, that's, where, that's what's going on here. It's, it's ultimately about the mission of Jesus is, is sending us to, um, but like the seals, we have to have conditioning first. We're not ready yet. Peter's not ready yet. And so he's saying, no, there's, it's, it's about the mission. It's about what I'm calling you to, the life I'm calling to you, but I have to do some things in your life. I have to work on some things in your heart here. And so, and so this, this is a missional chapter here. So let's go back. I want to read this. Um, the context is Easter morning happened. The evening of Easter, the all like that night, Easter night, all the disciples are still scared, questioning what's going on there in a locked room, um, in a house somewhere, and, and remember, Jesus just like appears to them, like through a locked door, and Jesus starts laying down language for what it means to be his, his, uh, his apprentices post-resurrection. Okay, so he's going to start laying down some language. Listen to this. This is in the chapter right before what Ricky just read. Okay, so it's not in your bulletins, but it's like immediately before. It says, uh, again, Jesus said, peace be with you. Shalom. Um, as the Father has sent me, missional language, I was on a mission, uh, I am sending you now. So he's saying, my mission 
is now your mission. And this is interesting. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to say, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. So in shorthand, their mission now is somehow going to involve facilitating other people finding forgiveness for their sins, meaning that as they preach the gospel, it's either going to, two, two responses, it's going to bring people to a place of repentance, or as they preach the gospel, it's, it's going to leave other people unresponsive to the forgiveness and therefore left in their sins. But now what, what's the breathing thing? It's just about like Jesus, what his breath smelled like. I mean, that's weird. That's kind of odd. Like he, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. The reason it's weird is because if you know the rest of the story, when, when, did, when did the Holy Spirit come? Yeah, Pentecost, like Ch- Acts chapter two. Remember, Jesus has already ascended to the Father. He's been enthroned. And he says, wait there for me. And so they're waiting. And then on this Jewish festival of Pentecost, God pours out his spirit like the, Prophet Joel prophesied what would happen with new empowerment. Um, so what's this going on here? Because he says he, he breathed on them. He says, receive the spirit. And then he talks a little bit about their, their mission. Well, think about, think about what kind of language. Um, when was the last time in the Bible that this breathing in or on someone happened? You remember? Yeah. Page two of Genesis. What does God do? He breathes into the dirt and he creates a new family and he gives the family a mission, right? The, he give, this is what you are to do. You are my representative, all this sort of thing. What is John alluding? He, he's using an echo chamber of Genesis 2 to say, what is Jesus doing here? He says to his disciples, ragtag, he breathes on them, Genesis 2 language, and it's this picture of new, I'm doing it, I'm, I'm making a new humanity, a new family, and of course, just like Genesis 2, a new mission that I'm calling you to. So he's, he's not actually imparting the Holy Spirit to them. But at this moment, it's, it's a symbolic promise of what Jesus continues to promise. Hey, I'm going to send another helper. Go and wait for another one like me to come. I, if I don't go away, I can't send another one. So this is another one of these symbolic moments of saying, I'm going to send you a helper. But you know what it's going to be like? It's going to be like new creation in your life. It, it's, it's creating a new kind of humanity. And then the apostle Paul picks up on that in his writings. He says, God has created a new humanity. Those of us who, who are not in Adam, but in Jesus. And so that's what's going on here. Now, the disciples have been um, instructed to leave Jerusalem because remember, where are they right now during this story? They're at the sea. They're on a beach. The sea of sea of Tiberius or the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Gennesaret that has different names that it goes by in the ancient world. So they, they've left and Jesus says, go back to, remember our base of operation during the three years of ministry? That was around there. It's kind of the northwest side. He says, go there. And then John tells us that this account right here is this um, third appearance. There's a, there's a map that's gonna come up here. This is an aerial map of a portion of Israel. And of course, you see in the center there, that's, that's the Sea of Tiberias or the Sea of 
Galilee right there in the middle. And like where that, you see that red kind of pin drop? Um, that's, that's Capernaum. So Jesus, Jesus calls various disciples from there. Um, you go up a little bit further, Bethsaida, a little bit to the right. That's where Peter's from. It just means house of fish. Uh, you can see in the current map, the water has gone down. Bethsaida used to be like on the coast. Now it's like a couple hundreds of yards away. They're pulling water from the Jordan River and the Sea of Galilee for farming and other things. And then as you move down the left-hand side, you see uh, Gennesaret. Uh, you'll see Magdala, Mary, Mary of Magdala, Mary Magdalene. That whole northwestern coast is where Jesus spent an enormous amount of his time. He went into the synagogues around there, went into the homes of people, stayed in uh, Peter's mother-in-law's home there. Um, let me show you a couple other pictures. There's actually three th that I want to show. The first one is, is an evening shot. This was our, our trip last year uh, that uh, Jim Lindsay and I led to, to Israel. This is, this is my friend George. Uh, he said, my wife said, I have to get a picture of me in the Sea of Galilee. So he walked, this was evening time, sun is setting. So we're on that west coast side, like where that Gennesaret was, and we're looking east, we're looking toward those, see those big hills over there? Those are the Golan Heights. So the sun is setting, it's beautiful, it's quiet at night. The next picture is, is, is kind of a midday picture. A couple of, couple of our friends here tonight are in this one. I didn't get your permission, sorry. Sorry about that. Um, this is midday. And um, this is also looking, it's on that west side, it's looking out at the Sea of Galilee, you kind of see the size of it. And then there's a final one, this is early morning. This is the time of day that we're reading about in the story. So this, I got up early this morning, walked out onto this long pier, and the sun was just about coming up, you can see it. It's quiet, it's still it's, it's, it's beautiful. You can see the sky, it's like doubled because it's reflected off this clear glass of the Sea of Tiberias. And the sun comes up over the Golan Heights and it's, it's dark enough that you can't see too far, but beautiful, rich colors. And it's this setting that Peter and his friends, to them it's not a beauty, they're exhausted. <laughs> They've been up all night long out there, about 100 yards out from there, fishing all night long. And we read this, after Jesus appeared to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, it happened this way. He mentions seven disciples here, Simon, Peter, Thomas, and some others. Um, Peter says, I'm gonna go fishing. The others agree, said, we will go with you. And so they went out into a boat, and all night long we read that they labored and they worked, but of course caught Absolutely nothing. Now, there's a big question that, often, that readers of this text oftentimes wonder, commentators will say, is like, is Peter doing a bad thing by this? Like, should he be shamed? Is this his lack of belief? Is he like an apostate because he's like not obeying Jesus? And I don't think so. It doesn't really say that anywhere in the text that, that he's not condemned for what he's doing. But John is setting up an interesting tone, Okay. He's setting up a tone in this story where he wants us to see um, there's kind of an aimlessness. You know, like you get that feel? They're kind of just like, you know, they're sort of like, I don't know what to do. There's sort of like this aimlessness 
to the moment. There's, there's a lack of a sense of mission. John wants us to feel that, and I think we feel that here. There's, there's a lack of a sense of joy. All the things that, like post-Acts 2, when the Spirit comes, that it's like the church, you wouldn't find them doing this kind of thing. Not, not, not fishing, but I'm saying this sort of aimlessness, and John's trying to create this tone. And I think what he's saying here is this, that it's possible for you, it's possible for me to be a follower of Jesus and yet have a, have a lingering tone of aimlessness, to have a lingering tone of like a lack of assurance. What am I supposed to be doing? Uh, a lack of a sense of mission, like in, in who I'm called to be in life, a lack of some of these things. And, and so I think he's saying, and I think for us, is it poses a question for us. Is it possible for me to be a part of a community of Jesus followers, like I come to church, I, you know, I do, I might even read my Bible, I'm a part of a small group, I, you know, whatever I do, and yet still kind of lack joy, lack assurance, lack a sense of mission, lack a sense of unity with others. And I think John is pointing us to something, again, and it's not quite here, he, he knows it's gonna happen, he knows Acts 2 is coming, but I think uh, an application for us is that you and me, you and I as Christians, as followers of Jesus, every single day, multiple times a day, I have to ask, I have to seek God and ask that his Holy Spirit would, would empower me. God, would you empower me by your Holy Spirit to celebrate this thing that's coming up today? I'm going to a wedding. Help me to celebrate well with my friends. God, I'm going to a funeral today. Would you empower me to mourn with the people that I'm standing alongside? God, would you empower me today to, to see hurting people? Because I'm going to go throughout my day. I'm going to be probably pretty busy and focused. Would you empower me by your Holy Spirit to be aware of hurting people around me? Would you empower me to be really patient? Because I've got some difficult meetings coming up today. Would, would you empower me to hold my tongue when I need to? Would you empower me to say the hard truths when I need to? Father, would you, would you empower me to go sit with someone at the hospital? Because I don't want to do it. I don't like doing that. But would you empower me to, to go do that? Would you empower me to love my enemies or that one particular enemy? that I'm thinking about. Would you, would you empower me to say yes to quiet moments with Jesus today? To pause, to turn off the radio, to turn off the television. Would you empower me to do that by your Holy Spirit? Would you empower me to live with a sense of mission? The same mission that Jesus had. Because I can't fake that on, on my own. See, early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. And we're told that the disciples didn't recognize him. And that's not that strange. Remember that picture that we had up in the, you know, it, it's early, early morning. It's dark, 100 yards away. That's not that weird. I don't think the author is trying to say, like, in, remember last week we talked about the story where it said the, the disciples' eyes were kept from seeing him. That's not really what's going on here. It's just a very natural picture of they, they don't know who it is. And it says, he called out to them in verse 5, uh, friends, do you have any fish? 
And they say no. And, and so he says, well, throw, you know, throw your net over on the other side, on the starboard side. And, and so we're told that they do it. And so many fish that they're really unable to pull them all in. And then verse 7, it says, uh, John figured it out. John goes, oh, my goodness. <laughs> that's, that's the Lord. That's Jesus. And, and he says this to Peter. Now, how is it that John knows? It's, nothing's changed. The light hasn't come up that much more, I don't think. How does he know it's Jesus? Well, because this is miraculous. Um, only, only a school of fish captured by what, what first century Jews would have used as they were out in these shallow waters are called compound nets, which is like a circle of them. They would put corks on one end and like heavy metal on the other, and they would create like a, like a circle of it to try to capture all of these. That's really the only way to catch this big of a school of fish. And so the idea of, of sort of randomly casting out a, a, a net and capturing this just wouldn't happen but even beyond that, this story sounds familiar. <laughs> when was the last time something like this happened? Like three years ago. Go back three years in your mind, right? Where was Peter three years ago? He's fishing. That's his livelihood. And Jesus is walking along one of those shores, maybe near Capernaum, and Jesus is fishing, and it said that they had pulled their, their boats in to clean the nets, and Jesus is trying to get better footing so he can talk to people. So he just gets in one of the boats and kind of pushes out there with, with Peter. And he's teaching and talking, and Peter's just listening. And then when he gets done talking, he says, hey, hey Peter, go just, just a little further out and throw your nets out. And same deal, exhaustion. Jesus, I've been, I've been working all night long. I am exhausted. And then he goes, because you tell me to do it. I'll do it. And of course, he throws it out, and it says he had to get another boat. It was so many. The nets started to tear. He, he makes this point. So this has happened before. Um, and in fact, listen to the response by, this is in Luke chapter 5, Luke 5, 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, what? This miraculous catch. This is three years ago, okay? When he saw it, he fell down on his knees and listened to his language. Depart from me. Why? Because I'm a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also James and John, sons of Zebedee, who partnered with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, listen to this. This is like a flashback in a movie, okay? This is all like rushing to, to Peter's head as this is happening. He says, don't be afraid. And then store this li next line away for a minute in your minds. He says, from now on, you will catch men. What the heck is he talking about? He's this Jewish rabbi. He gets in my boat. He does something. I know he's a prophet. Something's weird. But then he says, you're going to catch men. He's, what? It's like the start of a mission, but what in the world does that, what in the world does that mean? It says, and then they brought their uh, boats to land. They left everything and said, and they followed him. They just started following him, like day one. They just started walking after him. So this moment three years ago comes rushing back into Peter's mind. Think about it. I mean, he remembers that. This was a pivotal moment in his life. This comes rushing back in his mind. In verse 11, it says, as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, heard John say, it is the Lord, what does he do? It says he wraps his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and he jumps into the water. 
Um, and a lot of people always, kind of, this is also one of those passages, this whole chapter is filled with passages as I'm reading commentaries this week where they're like, this person thinks he did it for this reason, this person, um, why does he put his clothes on and then jump in the water? Well, the, the actual word in the Greek, it says, uh, he, he put on his clothes because he was gymnos. We get our word gymnasium from that. How did the Greeks go to the gymnasium? Naked, naked, as Pastor Steve would say, naked. Um, he's probably not naked out there, Jewish man, but basically he's, he's in his loincloth. So he's probably the guy. What that means is one of the, one of the fishermen would always jump off and help, help set up those nets. So he would have been in and out of the boat all night long, jumping in the water, getting back out. So he's taken off his outer robes. He realizes it's him. And so he takes his outer robes and like wraps them up around him. The same verb that's used here of wrapping it up is the same word that is used when it says Jesus tied a towel around himself at the Last Supper. And then he started washing the disciples' feet. And so he, he's, he's wearing a workman's cloth is the picture here. So he, he ties it up around himself and, and he, he jumps in the water. Verse eight says, the other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net of fish. I love that Peter leaves them with the hard work of pulling because it really is hard work. Like he, he just says, you know, you can get it. Jumps in the water, swims that 100 yards or so. It says they were not far from shore, but 100 yards. They landed now, look at this. John's, John wants us, to, wants us to see something. And Peter, and Jesus wants Peter to see something. What did they see? Yeah. They saw, but what, what's the text say? They saw a fire of burning coals with fish on it and some bread. Now, think about the scene that Jesus has just created here. Remember, he just said earlier that my mission is your mission, Okay. Now, remember when Jesus washed his disciples' feet? You remember that? That was in chapter 13. Now what's he doing? Yeah, he's cooking them, he's cooking them breakfast. He, he serves them. He's still serving them. Even as the risen, exalted, glorified Lord, he's still, this says something about what Jesus' mission was. Because remember he says, my mission's your mission. All this is informing them. This, this is all SEAL training for them. How am I going to do, what, what do you mean your mission is my mission? How do, well, look, what's going on with, with my mission? And what's so interesting, this is fascinating, that he just meets their, their tiredness and their weariness after a long night of hard work and toil with just a hot breakfast. Man, how cool is that? They can begin to eat, he says, what he has already cooked well, some of the fish that they have caught is being prepared. See, this is all a part of shepherd training. This is all a part of what it means to be a shepherd. And when I say the word shepherd, don't think like pastor, because this is a universal thing. Every single one of there is someone that God has given or put in your life for you to shepherd in this definition of it. You might be a manager at a place at work, and your employees are the ones that you're called to. Now, we use the word manage. A Christian would say, I'm shepherding them, whether they're believers or not. If you're a parent, you have, a, you have children, they're grown, and you're shepherding them. There's always someone in your life that, that, you're, that you're shepherding. And if there's not, then it's like, man, I might be isolated. I need, to, I need to get out there. But this is something for us. Think about this. They come into shore. They've been working at fishing all night long, just trying to 
feed themselves and their family and what they're doing. And when they get there, what does Jesus already have for them? He's already working on it. He's already working on it. And see, Jesus, Jesus is at work in what he's called you to do long before you even started doing. And that's huge to know. That is absolutely huge to know. You might be taking care of an aging parent in your life. Maybe you have a spouse in your life and, and either one of them, they're, they're not too jazzed about your faith in Jesus and it's, and it's challenging for you. Maybe they're resistant to it. He's been at work with your parent. He's been at work with your spouse long before you got there. You're late to the game. He's been working on it. You, you might be wringing your hands, thinking about your future. What's my vocation going to look like? What's my retirement going to look like? What, is my, what are my relationships going to look like? What, what, how am I going to create my future and my life? Jesus has been working on that long before you were ever wringing your hands or concerned about it. You, you might be anxious about how am I going to get through that thing coming up? Maybe it's a treatment. Maybe, maybe some things you know it's coming up that you're going to have to deal with. Um, how am I going to get through that? It's going to be so hard. I just don't even know how I'm going to get through with it. Jesus already stands at that moment. He's there. Jesus stands at that moment preparing what you will need when you are anxious, what you will need when you are worried, what you will need when you're in that moment. He's already there. Verse 10, Jesus said to them, bring me some of the fish you have caught. So Simon Peter, he actually goes back into the boat because remember he was out and he, he drags it off and he pulls it out and it's 153 of them. And interesting, he says, the nets aren't torn. And what does that mean? Is that, some, it's, is that a, kind of a parallel to the first time when they were torn and now it's, it's different? I don't, I don't know. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dare ask him, I love this, who are you? Though you could tell they wanted to, but, but they knew it was him. They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This is now the third time John says that Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Um, large quantities of ink have been given to why are there 153 or whatever. And I have read many commentaries on it, and the answers are quite convoluted. I don't know if there's any significance to the number at all. Um, from a merely historical perspective, it would make sense that they would count them either, you got multiple guys, they're gonna divide them up to sell. You sell this and maybe that way. Or maybe it was just the sense of someone was standing there going, holy cow, how many fish are there? You know, probably didn't say holy cow, but <clears throat> whatever their equivalent was. But, but the significance of the fish, it still remains. Remember, remember back to Luke 5? Remember three years ago? What happened? I said, store that away from it. Jesus said to Simon, same guy, Peter, three years back, flashback, Luke 5. He says, don't be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. It's starting to come together. That's why he said that. That's what's going on. His mission is now my mission. It's, it's, it's like starting to come full circle in Peter's mind. It's starting to make more sense to them. <clears throat> um, okay, that was phase one of shepherd training on Tiberius Beach. It was about reestablishing 
the mission of Jesus and saying, my mission the whole time is now your mission. You take ownership of this mission. And this, you know, I think, like, think about our, our mission as a church. Does anyone know what our mission statement is? Timberline Church exists to lead people into a transforming relationship with Jesus and with others. That's not unique to us. I mean, we're just copying from the Bible, right? That's your mission. That's my mission individually. That's our mission corporately. Okay, so phase two of shepherd training on Tiberius speech. So think about the setting. Um, Jesus and Peter, remember what they're sitting around at the beach? What are they sitting around? John wants us to see this. They're sitting around a fire, a charcoal fire. Again, when was the last time, quite recently, not three years ago, very recently, that Peter was sitting around a fire? He's in Jerusalem. He's warming his hands at that fire. It's at April night. And Jesus has said, you will deny me. He said, I'll never do that. And then how many times does he deny him? Three times. Jesus, Jesus always does things intentionally. He just created a, a learning moment for Peter that's transformative about the fish. Remember that three years ago thing? And now he's creating another moment for him around a fire. He goes, come here, come a little closer to the fire. And you know, you know Peter can't miss this. You know, I mean, you see it. Peter's thinking about this moment. He's thinking, I remember the last time I was by the fire. I remember what happened. I denied Jesus three times the very thing that I said I wouldn't do, this triple denial. And so in phase one of shepherd training, Jesus creates this experiment, and, and now this is phase two, and he invokes this memory of sitting by the fire of when Jesus rang the bell, or when Peter rang the bell, so to speak, when he said, I'm done, I, I quit. In verse 15, when they had finished eating around this fire, Jesus said this to a Simon, uh, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Uh, again, a lot of questions. What does he mean by more than these? Um, he, probably mean, he probably means, and here's why, is your love for me greater than their love for me? Do you love me more than John loves me? Do you love me more than James loves me? Do you love me more than that guy loves me? And here's why he said it. It's not because Jesus needs to know, like, who loves me the most here, because you're going to become my favorite guy. Jesus always does things to reveal things in people's lives. And listen to what's going on here. So why ask that? Um, here's the question. How often has Peter boasted about how committed he is? How often? Like all the time, right? There's no other disciple who's not a, a bigger talker in terms of like, oh, I'll do that. I'll die for you, Jesus. I'll do it. He's always boasting about his spiritual will, how strong he is spiritually, how resolute, what he will do, that he will come through. How self-righteous is his response here? Listen, uh, he says, uh, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus says, okay, feed my lambs. Uh, again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. A third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now, here's his big chance, right? Jesus, I will die for you. Of course I love you. I would do anything for you, right? This sort of spiritual pride of how strong he is. Listen to his response. Listen to the tone. He said, Peter was hurt. 
because Jesus had asked him the third time, do you love me? And listen to, listen to what he says. Lord, you know. You know all things and you know that I love you. Jesus says, feed my sheep. See, Peter has disowned Jesus at the previous fire three times. And so this very simple but profound confession is also three times this picture of bringing him back. But how much arrogance and self-righteousness is in his claim about how much he's in with Jesus? There's not a, there's not a shred of it. He, he can't bring up his long history of service to Jesus. He can't bring up that he was the choir director for many years. He can't bring up that he has selflessly led the small group for so many years or, or that he has been doing the meals ministry for so long and never received any thankfulness. He just says, you know, you know my heart. For the first time, Peter's not justifying how in he is. For the first time, he's not justifying how committed he is to Jesus. For the very first time, he doesn't have to prove himself. See, I believe that spiritual pride began to break in Peter. Because this is a different Peter. He's not yet transformed by the Spirit, but this is a different Peter. Spiritual pride has been broken in his life. And see, here's the danger I would suggest. that Anytime spiritual pride is, is in your life... You, and when spiritual pride is in my life, I'm going to have a tendency to become blind to small sins. Can I put it that way? Um, one, one of my heroes of the faith, Johnny Erickson Tata, who has been a quadriplegic for 50 years, almost of her life. She's almost 70 now after a diving accident when she was like 17 years old. She wrote an article recently where, where she talked about her tendency early on was to... Uh, the phrase she used was housebreak small sins. <laughs> like an animal, you know, you housebreak them. Kind of make them manageable. Taming them to look respectable. And she talked about how when, when, she, was, when, when she was young, um, she, she began to recognize that she had this dullness to the convicting power in her life. And she followed it back to, she said, because of this sense of, look at all the things I'm doing. Look, at, look how committed, I am so committed. And that it, like, it dulled her and it blinded her to the small things in her life. And she said, my final prayer was, God, help me to become aware when I have an itchiness to get my own way. I love that phrase. An itchiness to get my own way. I don't know about you, but I have an itchiness to get my own way all the time. But she became, she became aware of that in her own life. And see, that's the spiritual pride that I think is beginning to dismantle in Peter's life here. And this is the part of the beach training. And then he says, verily, I tell you, when you were younger, there's this weird statement about Peter's future. When you were younger, you dressed yourself went where you wanted. But when you're older, he says, you're going to stretch out your hands. You're going to be dressed by someone else. And you're going to be led somewhere that you don't necessarily want to go. And then John makes a comment. The reason he told him this was to, to indicate what kind of death he was going to have. And then he ends with, look at the words. What does he say? Follow me. Hey, those are the first words he ever heard from, or that directly to him. This is coming full circle. First words he ever said to him, Peter, follow me. Last words he's saying to him and John, follow me. And what's remarkable is that Peter lives for like another three decades with this reality hanging over his head but he eventually 
does glorify God in his death through martyrdom, probably in Rome, under the emperor Nero. And we read toward the very end, Peter turned and saw that this disciple who loved him, this is John, uh, so they're probably walking down the beach at this point. They're no longer sitting by the fire, apparently. Um, he, he sees him because he just heard how he's going to die. And I love Peter's response. He goes, I don't know if like, he whispers, like, what, what about that guy? Like, what's going to happen to him? You know, he wants to know, what about, what about John's uh, future? And Jesus, Jesus says, if I want him to remain until I return, what's it to you? What does it matter to you? Follow, follow me. In, in this final phase of the shepherd training on the beach of Tiberias, Jesus challenges Peter to, to be consistently, daily an apprentice until whatever end God has planned for him. He told him in this. He wanted him to be an apprentice. One of my, um, one of, another one of my heroes of the faith is uh, Dallas Willard. Uh, Dallas Willard was, he passed away in 2013, I think it was. And um, one time I, I was listening to an interview where he was being interviewed by one of his students, John Ortberg, who was one of his uh, apprentices. And they were talking, and Dil, uh, Dallas Willard was very old. He was kind of the end of his life. His voice was so weak. He was struggling to get things out. And, and Willard said a comment that struck me. I think it struck Ortberg too, because he asked him to repeat it. He said, sometimes, John, I go throughout my day, and I realize that I wasn't an apprentice of Jesus today. And, and Orberg was like, so you mean like you weren't a Christian? And he goes, no, 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 of course I was a Christian. <laughs> I wasn't an apprentice. I was like, well, what do you mean? He said, an apprentice is learning. I, sometimes he said, I'll get to the end of my day, and I realized I didn't learn a thing from Jesus today. <laughs> I didn't learn a single thing. I didn't learn anything about patience. I didn't learn about may, making my yes, my yes, and my no, my no. And what Peter is learning from Jesus here is he's being challenged to say, Peter, I'm inviting you, and what I would say is he's inviting us corporately to a life of saying, this is the mission. My mission is now your mission. And I'm inviting you to a way of apprenticeship, which just means learning today. Learn. You're gonna learn something from me. You're gonna walk with me today through your regular life, and you're gonna learn. He invites us, the reader, to the same steadfast pursuit of the risen Jesus. And so here's, here's what I'd like us to do. And, and I don't know where you're at in your apprenticeship. I'm not even always positive where I'm at in my apprenticeship with Jesus. But I would ask you this. Where are you in your apprenticeship in terms of shepherd training? What are the areas that maybe Jesus wants to lean into a little bit in your life? Certain things about his mission, certain things about being an apprentice, certain dullness that you might have. And so what I would ask you to do is just what we talked about. During these next few minutes, we're gonna take communion. And I would ask you to ask the Holy Spirit. Remember those empowering questions? Would you empower me to see like what's really in my life? Would you empower me to see what are the areas that you are calling me to lean into in my apprenticeship with you in the shepherding thing that you're doing in my life? And what's so wonderful is this isn't done with condemnation. It's done with an assurance. Because different, different than, than the SEAL people waiting to hear from their instructor, that famous statement, the line they're looking for, that you, you're secured from hell week, it's, it's finished. We look back at this 
and we remember that Jesus said, you're secured. It's finished on the cross. And so it's out of that that we walk as apprentices with Jesus. So during this next song, go to one of the stations that are around the room and you can get the elements, the bread representing his body, the cup, his, his blood. There's a table on the back that has uh, gluten-free or allergen-free elements. You can get that back there. Take it on your own time. Engage in a time of worship and asking the Spirit to work on you. And then we'll close together.